Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Today, we're looking at a brother duo whose imagination and belief in each other changed the world. Their influence is more alive today than ever before, and their mark has been recorded in every nation on Earth. They shaped the landscape of the entertainment industry that we know today and are some of the most influential people in all of American history. Their biggest mission? To spark joy and happiness in as many hearts as possible, and to do it in a way that could only be explained by magic. They are... Roy and Walt Disney. All right, so when they first are in LA, they're deciding to work together. They found their studio. They call it the Disney Brothers Studio. It's going to be cartoons. And they started working in their uncle's garage. The first opportunity that they got in LA was a movie theater wanting like little comedic shorts to play before their feature length films. Side note, it didn't just come to them though. Walt literally walked into the theater and pitched the idea to the owner. Just saying things don't just happen. You have to take action. The owner did want to see a sample first, obviously. So Walt made a super simple black and white, solid background, like stick figure version of what he was thinking. The owner liked what he had and he was going to go through with the deal. But just as Walt was about to close on that deal, he got word that a movie distributor in New York was willing to pay $1,500 a piece for a series of that Alice idea from their Kansas City days. I wonder how he like found out about it. I know. I don't know. That I feel wasn't like that, said. That is like the most common thread amongst very successful people. They start, first of all, they start before they're ready. Massive action yep. for sure. They just like jump off the cliff and then just assume that they'll figure out their way down right. as they're falling. Failure is better than not starting for sure. Yes. And also they pitch themselves to the heavens. <laughs> yeah, they're like, confident. They are selling themselves mm-hmm. in every relationship, in every conversation, everywhere that they go. They are their biggest, not advocate, but like billboard. Like they are just, they believe in themselves so much that they're going to figure it out. And so they need you on board with their idea because it's great. Yeah. Way less fear of failure and way more just like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. So this put Walt in like a tough spot because the theater owner deal in LA was pretty much like a for sure thing. But the New York job was just better. But a risk. Yeah, it was a bigger opportunity. So he went to Roy, and Roy, having been the one that funded the sample reel that landed the sale to the theater owner in L.A., out of his little tiny government stipend, was super hesitant to walk away from the for sure thing for something much more risky. Because he the sample reel wasn't used for the New York job at all. Like, he paid for that. And to would, get the job in L.A. And it and would now, all be a waste. Yeah, now they're not even going to take the job. Yeah. And to even get going on the Alice cartoons for the distributor in New York, Roy would actually have to borrow money. So not only is it a risk because you're not taking for sure money and for something that you've already paid to land. Yeah. You're going into debt for the other job. Yes. I'm just foreshadowing here. I'm assuming Roy is going to let Walt <laughs> take his dream opportunity because Roy is Roy and Walt is Walt. I think you um, are getting the vibes of the story. <laughs> There's actually a little 
part that I grabbed from the Disney version. It's a book by Richard Schicknell, and he talks about what this meant for the the brothers. Their discussion on this occasion set the pattern for many discussions to follow as the Disney enterprise grew. With Walt pressing for the expansive project, Roy at first resisting and then giving in and somehow finding the ways and means of financing it. So like we said in episode one, Roy was a huge part of everything that Walt accomplished. And without Roy, the Walt Disney Company simply would not exist. Everything that the legend Walt Disney did was accommodated by the support of his big brother, Roy Disney. I mean, you've seen thus far in episode one how successful Walt was on his own. Which was not successful at all. (laughs) Which was literally failure. One thing that Roy couldn't do, though, was run the camera. One of the biggest factors in the Disney company's success was Walt's drive for perfection and unprecedented quality. He did all the animation himself in the early days, created all the sets, and he functioned as the director and cameraman on shoot days. They saved a lot of money like that, but Walt needed help. Roy just couldn't master a steady shot with the old-fashioned, hand-powered, silent movie camera. He would either overcrank, which slowed down the footage on playback, or he would undercrank, which made the film all like jumpy and unnaturally fast. Sounds kind of familiar. Like, I feel like I just don't have that like little YouTube touch that you have that you like I can't I'm like I can help but like you need to film that sounds like a lot of pressure though like I don't I've never seen a camera running like that but can you imagine and it's not just like okay a digital camera you can just record as many freaking times as you want and then speed it up or slow it down yeah editing it and it's like free every single time you record you're not paying money but this is like on film so if you are screwing it up not only are you wasting time you have to completely redo it there's no editing you're also costing yourself money and they had no money and it sounds like little like a minor issue but when first of all when you're siblings and like nothing is um you're very honest yes you you're okay with crossing all of the lines and boundaries and saying what you want Mm -hmm. and i can just imagine like little things like that just being full-on arguments yeah because that's how we are it's like i'm being a perfectionist cassie is trying her best and both of our it's just not meeting each other and it'll like we used to let it like kind of throw our whole day off but we've gotten really good at bouncing back and yeah just resiliency over peace yes and just attributing it to the situation like you're i'm always telling cassie i'm just irritated or annoyed at the situation i'm not irritated or annoyed at you yeah like you have to get really good that's hard for me drawing the line between identity person relationship and the task Mm -hmm. and situation and scenario right so because of this they're like okay this is like not (laughs) not working out we gotta do something so in making the best decision of this chapter walt called a certain ub iwerks if you remember him from the first episode we talked about how funny his name is but He is literally someone that Walt met at a random little job. He only worked at this place for six weeks and he met Ub. So Ub comes out to California. And by the time he got there, the brothers had already cranked out like half a dozen Alice cartoons, but they were barely making enough to live on. I almost picture because I'm like, oh my gosh, Ub, I works. They only knew each other in person for like six weeks before they parted ways. Well, and then they started a company together, but it lasted less than a month. And it failed. Yes. And this dude is literally flying or like 
moving from, where did you say he came from? From Kansas City so all the way out to LA. Yeah, he's taking the massive trek from Kansas City to LA for what? Like, they don't even really know. Like, it's not like they've, they have this right. massive, huge company that he's like for sure going to make money with. Mm-hmm. I just picture these guys just taking all the risk and all the moves and all the whatever, like the Facebook. What is the Facebook movie? Oh, the social network. Like the guys in the social network where they're yes. just like all living in one little house right. and everyone's running around doing these things, taking risk. They're at the forefront of like a new they. It's thing. all uncharted. All uncharted territory like Facebook was, mm-hmm. like social media was. They're Anyways. just guessing. They're just like... But they're all like... Their personalities and their goals are just... It's really cool. It must have been... Like, for as hard and discouraging as it may have gotten, it was probably also like exhilarating Thrilling. and really fun. So in California, the brothers were putting the small bit of profit that they made each month back into the business. And then they would just borrow more money as they had to. Um, They reached out to a couple of people that the Disney family had known in Kansas City. One of them was a girl named Edna Francis. And you need to remember her name for later. Walt had actually gotten a few free meals from her back in the day at Laughograms when everything was like just straight up failing. And he was like, okay, I need to eat food she helped him out so he knew that she had a soft heart so walt did this little bit of fundraising on his own he actually sent a letter to edna without roy knowing and then had to convince roy to even use the money when they got it but the brothers lived as frugally as they possibly could in la they shared a tiny apartment roy did the cooking like you said it was very like beans and rice were a staple in their diet And when they needed to eat out, they would buy one cafeteria tray and then they would just split it between the two of them. I read that Roy even supplemented their income by selling vacuums door to door in L.A. for a while. So he like fully was banking on his brother like he believed in this because that is a hard job, but also a humiliating job. Yeah, like not something that you would just freely choose to do out of your own desire. No, he could have been successful in doing anything else. He was was already already, in the Navy. Yeah, a banker. Like yes. had other- and now he is door to door selling vacuums because he just literally wants this for his little brother and like sacrificing his prime like his 20s yeah where he could have been figuring out either his own dreams or like settling down right so the problem was though that the alice series that they were creating for the producer in new york was not performing well in the theaters at all charles mintz he was the guy in new york that Um, was distributing those movies for them showed up and he like wanted to be released from the contract he was like this is not working i want out and they almost agreed they almost let him out but they had already started on the seventh alice cartoon and they needed to at least break even from what they had already invested in the project so they declined to let him out of the agreement at this point Ub Iwerks was out there in California working with them and his animation skill and then also the Disney Brothers trial and error from the past six months combined created their first commercial success with the seventh Alice short literally just in time and Mintz kept the Alice contract after that and he even renewed it twice with slight pay raises each time. Wow, that's huge. Also, mm-hmm. how discouraging. Your first six are failure, but your yeah. seventh one works. Like six is a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of failure to to put your hopes on. Well, what if the seventh one does like, well? Like what? No. Yeah. Six failures tells you something's not working. <laughs> you got to do something. 
So this was their very first taste of success. Walt had been at it for four years at this point, and though it wasn't like a huge deal by any stretch of the imagination, it was success nonetheless. It's like that little taste, the little bit of hope that you need to keep going, that maybe there's something down the line. After this, they realized that honestly, Ub Iwerks was just a better artist than Walt, and Walt was better at story direction and knowing what would be popular with audiences, so he's Walt stopped working on animation in 1924, and he never looked back. He's he, 22 at this point? 23? 22. Because in... Yeah. That's crazy. I think he's 22. That's so, crazy. I definitely, when I had no idea like what the story was about at mm-hmm. all, I just pictured Walt doing the animation yeah. until it was like mm, the Huge. massive Disney empire that we know today. 100%. But so wow, in his early 20s. Yeah, and there's a little tidbit like from later on. But people would actually ask Walt for his signature. And he was like, I don't think that these people know that, like, I don't draw Mickey. Like, oh my God. Yeah. But he was like, sure. But he, so, like, created the, yeah, the character. He's, he's definitely still. But I definitely thought he was the one drawing Mickey. Right. Yeah. So from 1924 on, Walt was the big picture guy only. The funny thing about this is, like, it's like oh he stopped drawing that's so crazy but the alice cartoons (laughs) he like gave up his position for ub who was like better at it to do the job and the movies weren't even good like apparently they were really really basic sketches of animals on like a super plain white background with alice who was a real girl um she was a real life actress in live action film and then she would interact with the drawings and like get herself into sticky situations and there was nothing complex about the art the story or the characters like it was very simple that is the benefit of being the first yes you get away with murder murder there were a lot of moments that the with the animals movements you couldn't even see what the animal was anymore you could just see like an a blob yeah (laughs) so but people were like hey i've never seen this move like that yeah and there was a real girl on the same screen as the cartoon and that was really cool no one had ever done that before like you said this stands to as an encouragement to all of you out there just start even walt didn't have a quality product at first tiktok is a testament to that Mm -hmm. youtube is a testament to that look at like OG a decade ago YouTubers their videos were not quality they were not seeing anything groundbreaking Mm -mm. but it was new yep one really smart thing that Walt did to survive was always taking the newest technologies like you said being first to everything that he could and just running with them while all of his competitors were trying to figure out like what are the pros and cons like what potentially could happen with this he was like embracing it and running with it before anyone else had even decided to like make anything of it another huge correlation with very successful people while everyone else is trying to decide and mull over what to invest in or what business to start is it worth it is it too much of a risk like the pros and cons i think it it takes like an average person like i don't know six months or something to decide i saw the stats the other day to decide on like a big investment and it for like very successful like Mm multi-millionaires billionaires it takes them like four to six weeks to decide on something these numbers could totally be off but if you're watching on youtube i'll put them in the little on the screen so you can have accurate information the gist is they make decisions way faster than the average person and that helps a ton with being successful 
So it's just like the, by the time an average person is able to invest in one thing, right? The very successful mindset person is invested in. Like They've already started. Four things. They're yeah. already. Wow. Well, they already have their their hand in like four times as many things as you because it That's takes crazy. them no time to decide. Mm-hmm. They'd rather like lose a little bit of money on a on a failure than like miss out on all of the opportunities and because it just goes, they've never started. Yeah, it goes back to abundance mindset and mm-hmm. like how Tony Robbins talks about there were all there will always be another opportunity. Yeah. Failure and for them failure is not the worst thing. Right. So I'm fine with failing. Everyone else is like I'm doing everything possible in my power to not fail to prevent that and the successful people are like eh, what's another failure on my back like if I fail enough times I'm gonna be successful again yeah exactly so like in this one like with Walt even though they didn't have the process down and the quality wasn't quite there they were one of the very first to put a live action actress on an animated background and have them interact with each other they ended up actually doing the opposite of that in one of your favorite movies do you remember oh Mary Poppins I was like the opposite of what? Oh, uh, yeah, the inverse. The like live action movie with cartoon animated characters on the live action movie interacting. Yeah. That is after the, after they nailed down a quality product. Yes. The penguins, that is iconic. So Walt had a plan when he got to LA that he was not going to get married until he was at least 25 and also had $10,000 saved up personally. That did not happen. <laughs> When Walt started hiring more help for the studio, he asked one of his staff if she knew anyone that would be a good addition and who didn't require a large salary. She said that she knew of a girl named Lillian who lived near enough to the studio that she could walk so she wouldn't have to pay a car fare to get to work. And she lived with her sister and brother-in-law, so her rent probably wasn't too crazy either. Wow, that sounds so familiar. familiar. Reading straight out of my journal. (laughs) She had just graduated business school and had moved to LA from Idaho, so she would obviously be looking for like an entry level position anyway. So this was perfect because Walt only had fifteen dollars a week to pay her. And the legend is that the girl who got Lily in the job told her that she would only hook her up with the position if she promised not to marry the boss because she had her own eye on him. Walt and Lillian took the train back to her hometown and got married at her brother's home. There is speculation that this relationship is actually the inspiration for all of the like poverty-stricken, love-struck, but slightly like funny newlyweds in all the Disney films. Um, The rumor is that the deciding factor for Walt in marrying Lillian was that, one, he was behind on paying everybody's salaries so he could get out of paying hers if he married her, and also that his brother Roy had asked Edna, you remember the one in Kansas City who Walt sent the letter to asking for money earlier? That Edna. Roy had sent a letter to her and asked her to come out from Kansas City to California and marry him. So Walt knew that he would need a new place to stay once she got there and when, once they got married. So Roy had started dating Edna Francis like way back in 1911. Wait a second. Roy is marrying the lady who... Yes. Who like gave Walt food to eat when he was when Laugh-O-Grams was failing? Stop it! And sent money to them whenever they were like eating beans and rice, starving in, in California. Yeah, she like helped them. So she's like kind so of just a like, part of the Disney story too because she 
was a support to them in, in the early days when they had nothing. Yeah, wow. And then, obviously, she's Roy's wife, so she was a part of it the whole time. So but, they were just sending letters back and forth? Like, yeah, I guess. It was like just a long distance. Since 1911, they had been dating, and she actually has a little story about when Roy and Walt still ba- lived back in Kansas City. She said, Roy and I were just going together. We stopped at a drugstore to get soda, and Walt came to see Roy because he wanted a quarter or a half dollar for paper to draw on. Even then, Roy provided the money for Walt's artistic ambitions. <laughs> so cute. Wow. So she she's like threaded all through yeah. the story. Wow. She was there like front row. So Walt's decision in marrying Lillian is literally business transactions. <laughs> Are you I mean, me? he didn't, did, did he even love her? Like, Yes, it, he absolutely loved her. He just was going to wait until he had that like $10,000 saved up and he was 25 years old. But because of their financial struggles and because he would have to find an apartment on his own anyway, which also would be a financial struggle. And he's like, I am going to marry this girl. I love her. He was like, okay, let's just get married now. Screw my plan. Whatever. Wow. Cheeky. So Roy and Edna Disney were married in the spring of 1925 in Los Angeles. And Walt and Lillian were married in July of 1925, so just a couple months later. And Edna and him had, and Edna and Roy had been talking since 1911. 1911, yes. Oh my gosh, so over a decade. Yeah, Almost and that 14 years. That speaks to Roy's like constant, steady personality. Just loyal. Yes. And then to speak on the poor, like newlywed archetype that people say like shows up in the Disney movies because of them, they really did not have much. Walt actually had to beg Roy to dip into the company account to buy himself a suit for his wedding. And, of course, he ended up spending $5 more than they agreed upon. Walt and Lillian were also saving up for a car after getting married, but one night he asked his new wife which they should purchase first, the car or her ring. She quickly responded that she believed the ring was uppermost in her mind, and that settled the matter. (laughs) Of course she did. Why would he even ask? Like, Honestly, he was he was trying to get away with it, but she wasn't going to let him. Right around that same time is when Walt got to see one of their films being shown in a theater for the very first time himself. Lillian and her sister were hanging out and Walt had the night off of work, so he decided to walk to the local cinema to see what he could see. A cartoon short by a competitor was being advertised outside, so he went in, he wanted to see, you know, what are they doing over there? Um, And as he sat in the dark theater waiting for the movie to come on, it started playing his film. So he was so shocked that he ran out and went straight into the manager's office. And the manager misunderstood him. And he thought that Walt was freaking out because he wasn't playing the right movie. So he started apologizing for not showing the advertised movie. And Walt was like, okay, never (laughs) You don't understand what I'm saying. Goodbye. By 1927... Charles Mintz, remember, he's the guy who's in New York. He's the distributor of their movies. He knew that the Alice series had run its course. So he sent his brother to L.A. from New York to encourage Walt to create something new to replace it. This is when Oswald the Rabbit was born, if you know him. He's like a very 1920s style cartoon. He was definitely 
a step up from the live action Alice, but he was also very definitely not quite a Mickey Mouse. It was instantly a success at the time though, and the Disney product had raised in value to $2,250 a reel from the previous $1,500 with the Alice series. The only thing that the Disney brothers couldn't figure out was why Mince's brother, George Winkler, kept on visiting almost monthly all the way from New York, even when they already had a successful new product. He was the one that like came out to LA to tell them like, hey, this, the Alice series is like, it's old news. We need something new, create something new. But he just like kept coming to LA, even though they created Oswald the Rabbit. He normally brought their check and then took back with him to New York, the new poster art, but that was messenger work. And it was like normally below someone who was in his job title. Also, I would think that's kind of weird because like if it's a new business relationship, I would understand like wanting to have your hand like really yeah. involved in in it um and seeing like what's happening right but because they had such a long business relationship like they had already done seven like well even more than that because yeah. it became successful uh-huh. they had done the entire alice series together right this is their second series they, and it's already successful they yeah, already, they've already proved themselves with it like why do you keep coming back to check like what are you checking on so they were confused but they were like maybe this winkler guy is just like more particular Charles Mintz is just like allowing his brother to do whatever with his project that he wants to do. So they were like, kind of just like whatever rolled their eyes. That's kind of weird, but you're just a control freak. Yeah. So Walt and Roy saw the success of Oswald and realized, you know what? We really should be paid more for those films. So full of confidence, Walt took Lillian on the train to New York for a little business trip so he could renegotiate the contract and ask for just a modest raise. When they got to Mince's office in New York, though, he was instead asked to take a pay cut. Walt refused and then subsequently learned the real reason for all of those visits by Winkler. He had been instructed by Mintz, his brother, to ingratiate himself with as many of the Disney staff as he could, kind of get on everyone's good side and hint to them that there might be pay raises for them if they were willing to leave the Disneys at the right moment. Mintz threatened that if Disney didn't sign a new contract for the lower price, that he would take a bunch of the Disney employees and that he would also take Oswald from him too. Oh my gosh, devastating. What a little shark. When they named Oswald, unfortunately, they copyrighted him under Mince's firm name. Sounds dumb in hindsight, but apparently it was like common practice back in the day in both like the animation world and the newspaper industry. It was supposed to ensure that the characters would stay around even after the creator had passed away or quit. Walt fought back hard. He told them that if the artists that they had recruited were so willing to leave Disney, that they would be just as quick to desert mints as well, and that replacing them would be absolutely no problem for Roy and Walt. Later, though, Walt said that he actually had none of the confidence that he fronted to mints in that moment, and he was deeply hurt by his employees' willingness to leave him. Mm. Even in later years when employees would leave for better reasons, Walt was always offended and felt personal disloyalty. He just knew what he was building and he couldn't believe that someone like wouldn't be on board or 
there for the future absolutely and jobs were different back then like it was now it's the norm to like jump around and like make the best career move that you can but back then you would get a job in your like 20s and then you would work your way up within that company and retire from the same company that you would like worked for for 40 years so it really just cemented and fueled that distrust that Roy and Walt had already had for people in general, um, but especially people that they had to work with after Mintz pulled that crap. After that event, they were exceedingly careful to own all the rights to their creations. And actually, this is like a hallmark of Disney Studios for the rest of their lives and even today. Like Disney owns everything. Everything. Disney owns everything. But honestly, that was probably like in hindsight, a really good, good lesson to mm-hmm. learn at that time when yep. they were still extremely small and hadn't come up with Mickey and the gang and all of that. Because can you imagine he created Mickey and some other like distributor had the rights to Mickey? Yeah, that would so, that would be catastrophically worse. A painful but good time really to lesson. Really good lesson, yeah. So Walt sent a telegram to Roy from New York at the time and said, everything okay, coming home. And although he was, like, just trying to prevent Roy from worrying for the few days before he got back and could, like, explain the whole story, he was actually predicting what would really happen. They had learned a lesson, like you said, but everything was going to be very much okay for the Disney company because something is right on the horizon. So here's a quote from Walt. But was I downhearted? Not a bit. I was happy at heart. For out of the trouble and confusion stood a mocking, merry little figure, vague and indefinite at first, but it grew and grew and grew and finally arrived. A mouse. A romping, rollicking little mouse. Walt Disney. Absolute legend. Can you imagine interpreting like your emotions through a figure in your head? Yeah, that's crazy. Like that's what kids do like uh-huh. through play therapy and stuff. Uh-huh. But as an adult, like he definitely has like a different type of brain. There are tons of different versions of the story of how Mickey Mouse was created, but the one thing that they all agree on is that the idea came to Walt on the train back from that terrible betrayal of a meeting in New York. The idea completely engulfed me. By the time my train had reached the Middle West, I had dressed my dream mouse in a pair of red velvet pants with two huge pearl buttons, had composed the first scenario, and all was set. Walt Disney. I didn't even know that Mickey's wearing like red velvet pants with the pearl buttons. I had no idea that that was like, it just looked like red and white, you know? Oh, it just looks like like you weren't seeing normal red shorts and white buttons. Mm -hmm. But apparently Mickey is fancy. Fancy. And if you know anything about the Disney origin story, you probably do know that before Mickey Mouse was Mickey, he was named Mortimer Mouse. Mm -hmm. I remember that from the museum as well. I think he has a really good memory of this museum. <laughs> Walt had a special place in his heart for mice after his Kansas City Laughagram days. Legend has it that he heard mice like rustling around in his trash can at that office and proceeded to dig them out and created a little pen for them to live in as his pets in that office. And I'm sure he was used to them growing up on the farm, but it's kind of ironic that a symbol of the impoverished days of his life when he had absolutely nothing. He had no success. He was literally scraping pennies trying to eat. And mice are also a token of like a low economic status Mm -hmm. in general. That is what catapulted him to royalty. One major caveat of using a mouse for Walt though was that he had to be a 
clean mouse. Walt was crazy for cleanliness and organization, and that massively influenced his characters and later his parks as well. As far as the name change, there are two stories that float around, one being that the first distributor that Walt showed the mouse to loved everything about him except for the name, which sparked the change. But the more popular version, and one that Lillian Disney herself told, was that she herself thought that Mortimer was too pretentious and told Walt to come up with something less formal sounding for their furry little friend. See, that's the story that I remember reading yeah. in the museum. I was, think that that's the story. Walt Disney's wife that suggested a name change. So either way, it was obviously the right choice. Can you imagine like Mortimer Mouse? <laughs> no, honestly, it's kind of cute. It's kind of kitschy. It's cute, but like we grew up. Yes. And we grew up watching Angelina Ballerina and that mouse is highbrow. And it's like not something you want to wear as like a 25 year old on your sweatshirt. Definitely a different like princess feeling than just good old pure Mickey Mouse. Mickey is a pal. He is a friend. But anyway, however the name change happened, what is certain is that before the contract with Mints had ended, the Disney studio was already working on Mickey. Okay, so this is when the frugality that the brothers had practiced finally paid off. Um, because between them, they had saved between twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars in personal assets, so they were able to go ahead with three Mickey Mouse films, even though they didn't have anybody to buy them yet. They were able to just go ahead and make them, and unlike any of the films that they had created before, the Mickey movies were going to have the newest technology in the industry, of course, because it's Walt. Do you know what that is? Is it colored film? It's not color. <gasps> Rewind. Oh, sound. It's sound. Ub Iwerks, the artist that they had brought out from Kansas City, was one of their chief assistants in the early Mickey days. He is listed on the credits as drawn by, and of course, voiced by, is Walt doing Miss Mickey himself. Did you know that? I did know that. I didn't know that. I've seen a, uh, maybe I'm making this up in my head, but I'm pretty positive I've seen a clip of him in black and white, like real life, actually doing the voice. Wow, I need to find that. And now they just needed someone to distribute what they had created. Enter Pat Powers. He was looking for a way to advertise his new Cinephone sound recording system that the Disneys had actually used on their films to add the sound. So obviously, that was a good partnership. They weren't going to be working with Charles Mintz this time, clearly, because... Bye. Yeah. Boy, bye. (laughs) And so they needed a whole new process of getting their films out because they didn't want to lose the rights to Mickey like they had with... Oswald the Rabbit. So they were like, okay, we need a whole new, like we need a new distributor. We need a new whole new system. Powers used a method called states rights distribution. And basically to get more theaters showing the movies more quickly, the producers, in this case, the Disney brothers would hire a national distributor to sell the movies to each state or territory. Then a booker would peddle the film to all the little tiny theaters in that territory. So you had to pay the theater that showed your movie the guy who booked your movie to that theater and then the national distributor who gave it to him. And that guy took 10% off the top. So yeah. Also, can I just say these names, Pat Powers. I know. They're literally all like cartoons or I don't know, vintage stars. Like So cute. And these are like not celebrity people. These are like normal, normal people. people. Like behind the scenes people. Yeah. It's like Elvis Presley and Pat Powers. We like all you can just literally see their name in life. Absolutely. We got very boring. What happened? What happened? Okay, so the guy, the national distributor guy who took 
10% off the top. And that guy for the first Mickey movies, Steamboat Willie and Plame Crazy, was Pat Powers, who was the national distributor, took 10% off the top. It definitely hurt paying all of those people, and there wasn't a whole lot of profit left over once it got back to Roy and Walt. But this way, they maintained every copyright, and the main goal at this point was just to get the names Mickey and Disney out to as many theaters as possible because Walt knew that they had something really good here. Yeah, they were playing a long game. Like yes. They were running a marathon, not sprinting. There are sowing seasons and harvesting seasons, and this was definitely a sowing season. I think that that is a big lesson as well. Start with the end in mind. Yes. They, although they were making like very rash, quick decisions on things and taking risk, it was like all for their end goal. Exactly. So if these films did well in the theaters, then the owners of the theaters would automatically want to show anything else that Walt Disney Studio would produce in the future without the need to pay like the distributor and go find the people and have a booker and all that. It would just be like one and done. Here's the movie. No paying everyone to like go peddle it. So even if these initial films didn't make a ton of money with their sales model, they would go far fast since it wasn't just like a single distributor selling the movies. It was a whole networked system. During this period, Walt started their series called Silly Symphonies. And the first film he released from that project was The Skeleton Dance. (gasps) If you haven't seen it, yeah, go look it up on YouTube. I sent Bethany an Instagram post the other day. Honestly, so cute. Like, were they ahead of their times or what? Like, that is literally so aesthetic now. Like, I can see that all over Tumblr. Like, that is a brand. We'll put, if you're watching on YouTube, we'll put it up. He was really trying to push the boundaries of sound in that film because it was so new at the time. And obviously, (laughs) clearly, he understood how big of a deal that was. So, no one else was really doing anything creative with it or artistic. Um, They were kind of just doing what you know what you would think just like putting the voices and everything on the movies so he dumped a ton of money into pioneering how to figure out synchronizing the music to the film and having like the characters movements and stuff match up with what was happening audibly powers told him to stick to mice and he passed on the skeleton dance and then when walt took it to a friend in the music business he was told that although some of his customers like really loved it He could not possibly recommend it for regular showings for it was far too gruesome. Walt pressed on, but after a year of work and 21 completed films, the Disney brothers economically had very little to show for their work. It was becoming increasingly clear that their deal with Pat Powers was not really working out the way they'd expected it to, and they never really heard much from him. When they did, they just received a check for three dollars or $4,000 in the mail. And it kind of seemed to the brothers that if the Mickey films were doing so well, even after paying distribution costs, they should be making more than that. And then they started to hear a little rumor lurking around the office that Pat Powers was about to try to hire Ub Iwerks, their main artist, out from under them and start his own studio. Powers had heard that Iwerks was the real talent behind the whole thing and was convinced that he could be in the same position as Roy and Walt if he could just coax Iwerks to work with him instead. No wonder they were so, like, closed off from everyone and, like, very... There is reason for it, for sure. Of abandonment. Like, yeah, they... It was not for no reason. Walt was not about to stand for this again. He hired a lawyer and they hopped on a train to New York with Lillian. And in no time, they realized that Powers had actually done himself in. When he began working with the Disneys, he had expected to just use the Mickey films to advertise his Cinephone. 
he did not expect the mouse to be more popular than his technology. He had neglected to make a sufficient contract since he didn't think that there was much there. The contract that they had only lasted a year. So from the minute that he realized Mickey was far more lucrative than his Cinephone, he had been trying to milk the Disney brothers for all that they were worth. When they arrived in New York, Powers greeted them with a telegram from his L.A. representative indicating that Iwerks had already signed a contract to create his own cartoon series with Powers. He proposed that if Walt agreed to sign a new contract created by Powers, he would tear up the contract with Iwerks and pay back what he owed the brothers for the last year. He would not allow them to look at his books to see what they were actually owed, though. He invited them to instead pay thousands in a legal fight in order to get access to that information. But the new contract would pay the Disneys $2,500 a week from here on out. No one had offered that much money to Walt in his life ever before. He needed some time to think it over. Please tell me he did not sign that contract. Of course, it's Walt Disney. And he's already paranoid, so that's working in his favor at this point. What this figure actually did, though, was confirm to Walt that what they had was a very good thing. Before he left L.A. to head to this meeting in New York, his big brother Roy had told him that he had to get a cash advance from Powers for the studio to continue operating. So that's just what he did. He let Mr. Pat Powers know that he needed just a little bit more time to think it over, talk to his brother about the deal, so he'd be headed back to L.A. and would be in touch soon. And then he just casually mentioned the need for some cash before walking out the door. Powers obviously wanted him to freaking sign this contract that like was not a good deal for Walt and Roy and an amazing deal for him. So he, in being anxious to get on his good side, just like quick scribbled a $5,000 check and just handed it right over to Walt. No questions asked. Walt stalled him just long enough until the check cleared and then broke off all negotiations with Mr. Pat Powers. The Disney's made no efforts to try to keep iWorks on, and he went on to set up his own studio with Powers Funding and created a series called Flip the Frog. It went nowhere. Perhaps because the Disney magic was never in the sketches, but rather in the stories, not in the hand of the artist, but in the characters created by the mind of Walter Elias Disney. Within a few years, iWorks was back at the Disney Studios, where he supervised special effects and worked on many of the most famous and classic films we know and love, such as the Mary Poppins scene where they fly over the rooftops of London. That was iWorks. He was instrumental in developing and improving animation techniques and even camera filming later on. He won two Grammys for technical achievements and even worked on The Birds with Hitchcock. But as much value as iWorks added to the studio, the Disney's relationship with him was strictly business after that event with Powers. Witnesses even report that Walt would look the other way when passing iWorks on the lot, or if he did have to speak to him, he would keep it to one-syllable words. iWorks' technical genius was enough to keep him around, but he was never personally forgiven for his moment of disloyalty in those early days. Jeez. That's rough, too, because it's like... I mean, yeah, he got... He let pride get in the way, but it was yeah. like a moment of weakness. Like a he was moment. An idiot. Yeah, yeah. But he was like one of the first ones to really start like for yeah, a while. He was, was there from like, Kansas City. He's the one that Walt first started his very first business with. It was them yeah, too. Yeah, because he was the one like Walt relinquished his drawing yeah. for uh because he That's was true. It, it is kind of like I understand the hurt, the personal hurt because especially since they've been burned so many times before they've been burned like, so many times before and then this was like probably one of their employees that was the very closest to them because he had been there from day one he had started another company with Walt before he had when they were like literally twenty yes like they were children and, and now they're adults and they literally gave him their 
like most valuable position in the company of being the main artist and creative director like that yeah yeah. just took it all for granted that sucks though wow sucks through 1932 the disney studio was still barely breaking even part of the problem was walt's unending drive for the best quality possible the real problem though more than the money issues was that walt was starting to break down emotionally and how old is walt here like around it's 32 and we ended in 23 so this is nine years later nine years later so he was 30 wow still so young yeah Later in life, he would share that he'd take Lillian out for dinner and then ask if they could stop by the studio on the way home, just for a second. She'd fall asleep on the couch at the office waiting for him, and then when he would wake her up to go home, he'd tell her it was about 10.30 p.m. Later, he found out that she knew all along that it was more like one in the morning when he'd wake her up to go home. She spent many nights trying to keep dinner warm waiting for him to get home from work, Once he showed up with a hat box tied in a red ribbon as an apology gift. Though it wasn't a hat. Can you guess what it was? In Lady in the Tramp or in real life? In real life. But also in Lady in the Tramp. He got her a dog? Yes. When I hear a a red ribbon tied around a hat box, I literally, all I think is Lady in the Tramp. But I didn't know that he literally gave her a dog in that. Yes, that (gasps) scene in Lady in the Tramp is inspired by the real life event of Walt and Lillian. Oh my gosh, how cute. Although his marriage never suffered too badly from his working incessantly, his mind definitely did. I kept expecting more from my artists than they were giving me, and all I ever did all day long was pound, pound, pound. Costs were going up. Somehow, each new picture we finished cost more to make than we figured it would earn, so I cracked up. I became irritable, and I couldn't sleep. I got to the point where I couldn't talk over the phone because I'd begin to cry. Walt Disney. And with how successful the operation looked from the outside, how popular his movies were at the time, just the Mickey Mouse fan club, you guys, had over a million members by 1931. People probably would never have guessed about Walt's mental state. I feel like it's literally impossible to actually have a balanced life if you're trying to do anything other than have a balanced life. But if you're wanting to be like a great or... yeah accomplish anything build something from the ground up yeah like there is no way to have to be in that like building growing sewing process Mm -hmm. and not have to sacrifice other aspects of your life whether it be personal whether it be relationships whether it be your mental health your physical health like something has to go he wasn't sleeping his wife had to spend so many nights alone yeah kudos to her too because like i mean she didn't have kids but that's all the more lonely. lonely yeah but That's a lot she, to handle. She had to have like really believed. And she actually worked for the Disney company at the beginning. I remember like that's how they met. So yeah. she probably was really, really behind that. Vision. Yeah. And was kind of on the same page. And who knows, maybe she even helped out still, you know, after they were married and everything. I'm sure. Yeah. So he went to the doctor and <laughs> obviously was prescribed a long vacation he and Lillian took a train ride across the country to Florida and then from there a leisurely cruise to Havana and then all the way back to California and guess what he did as soon as he got back got to work he tried to take up sports as a hobby but each one he tried just stressed him out more because he needed to master that (laughs) so it just added to the issue instead of providing any relief here's Lillian's memory Instead of playing golf like a normal person, he got up at 4.30 in the morning to get it out of the way before he had to be at the studio. He talked about the dew on the grass and the sunrise until I decided to take up golf with him. But we never got very far. Walt would fly into such a rage when he issued a stroke that I got helplessly hysterical watching him. 
They quickly decided on a non-competitive horseback ride at sunset instead. So he had a bit of an addictive personality. He would sneak around the offices like a ghost at night and on the weekends, taking peeks at storyboards his employees weren't ready to share with him yet, and leaving notes for maintenance about a burned out light bulb or an overflowing trash can, and actually did the same years later at Disneyland. He had a specific blue notepad and would walk through the park at night, leaving notes for the staff to find in the morning. He was so in it, like his dream, his vision, he cared so much. He didn't just want to be the boss. He didn't want to like be the owner. Yeah, he didn't want to be rich. He didn't want to have his his name be known. It was literally his dream to have every ounce of it come to life. Yeah. He didn't like to share any management duties or decisions, but they were having big issues figuring out Mickey's personality. According to several industry experts, something just wasn't quite right with Mickey. It was a personal blow to Walt, not just because he was his greatest creation, but because Mickey was basically just a caricature of himself. Mickey was Walt, and Walt was Mickey. People were telling him things like, Mickey's energetic, but he's not elevated. He's never sentimental. No one has ever walked out of a Mickey film and been more inclined to give an extra glass of water to the poor. And maybe that would have been just fine for a lot of creators, but Walt viewed Mickey as a hero. He wanted kids and adults alike to be inspired by Mickey's character. Some people were even saying that Mickey had the makings of a fad. He was just trendy. They had to make Mickey more verbal and softer. And as they tampered with Mickey's personality, it felt to Walt as though they were workshopping him. As they said, Mickey isn't funny. He needs funny supporting actors. It was a shot to Walt who prided himself in being the funny guy. So Walt is a grown man, totally enmeshed with a character. It's almost like Katy Perry, like how she talks about Catherine versus Katy. Yes. And Katy is Catherine, but just really heightened. Catherine created Katy to be everything that Catherine wanted to be, but wasn't or like didn't have. Walt wanted Mickey to be everything in one character, but when they wrote in certain things that they were lacking in the stories, it seemed out of character for Mickey. It just didn't work. And Mickey Mouse couldn't do anything that wasn't above board. He was already a role model for children. Again, the Mickey Mouse Club had already surpassed one million members at this point. Mickey was that popular and they still weren't making any money. All of this is what led to the breakdown in 1931. How could it not? He's literally been working at the same project, essentially, his entire adult life. The problem is, like, you think, okay, once I get, quote unquote, success, once this becomes popular, then I will be successful. And, like, it didn't happen at the same time. Yeah. Which is, like, crazy. Yes. Absolutely crazy. I don't think anyone would have ever known that. So, since Mickey couldn't be tampered with too much, enter Pluto and Donald Duck. Yes. Donald could blow his top and Mickey could keep his cool. Pluto could be stupid and Mickey could laugh about it. And of course, they already had Minnie as well. It was a pretty slow process. Donald didn't come around until 1934. And after a long list of career choices in Mickey's appearances, his identity finally ended up settling as an entrepreneur. Of course. Just like Walt. I think that's also like a nod to his dad. For sure. That, okay, I, that makes me want to cry. And also, um, you know that statue in Disneyland and Disney World where it's like Walt standing there and holding Mickey's uh-huh. hand? Like literally Walt was Mickey and Mickey was Walt. Like that is basically that idea in a statue. And it's so cute. I know. It really is like so pure. I don't know how you can be that genuine of a person and care that much. Yeah. 
like to where you're you're getting the point across by building an empire like how how did he not he just had to be so married to his vision and his dream and maybe Roy helped him a ton like stick to that original like where he came from but I don't understand like as a human like how do you not forsake some things like morals and stuff on in right. the process. Yeah, I don't know. Like he stayed so like and maybe like some of that type of stuff about Walt was what made him such a terrible business person. Yeah, true. Maybe yeah. And like so since Roy was able to take that, it ended up working even better than it would have if Walt was like a good business person and the creative Yeah, side. maybe that's true because he wasn't so money hungry and he right. didn't care about his name just absolutely being yeah. And like he he definitely did want to be somebody. He wanted to be successful, but it wasn't at the cost of his like greater vision. Yeah. Once Walt's nerves were a bit more calm, his obsessions and need for order transformed the studio and in the name of organization, they abandoned tradition. Typically in the film industry, especially in cartoons, they would kind of write the story as they made the movie. Walt was done with the chaotic energy so he took the animators that had shown the most talent with creating plot lines and founded a dedicated storyboard department honestly that's crazy sounds like such common sense and i can't believe that it was ever not like that that's what i'm saying how in the world did you create the story as you're literally like drawing the characters that sounds like the whole like if you fail to plan you plan to fail like it sounds like a surefire way to have a less quality product like how do you even know like what to dress them in and how to make them i don't know look because Mm -hmm. you need to know like where the story is going yeah i have no idea how, how would rapunzel like, why would she need that long of hair if the point of the story isn't that, like, she uses it to get out of the castle? You know? Literally. So finally, they separated the picture people from the word people. And even more impressive was their switch from black and white to Technicolor in late 1931. I think I can guess what project that happened with. Wait, what? Their first color. I will be shocked if you know this. Really? Yeah. Their first color movie? Yeah, I don't think you know it. Okay, never mind. Wait, maybe what I'm thinking of is, was their first movie not Snow White? No. Well, it was. Well, obviously not their first movie, but it wasn't their first color movie, no. But it was. What is it their first? It's their first something. Yes, it is. Should I spoil it? Princess? Is it their first like princess? No. Which, yes, it is. But it was also their first feature length film. All of these are short films. Oh, see, I'm thinking movie as in like an actual film. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, so I'm right and I'm wrong. Whatever, it's fine. I'm right. (laughs) Walt literally threw a movie called Flowers and Trees that was almost halfway done into the trash so that they could start over and make it in color. I honestly don't even know how you make something black and white versus color. Like, how could you not just put like an overlay or something and make it color? Do you know how they like make old black and white movies colored now? Oh, yeah. I guess they just didn't have that technology they did, yeah, back then. That's like, you like had to start out from the Yes, I think that that's color. probably done like on a computer. Yeah, okay. This is all like film. So can you guess how Roy felt about Walt literally throwing half of a perfectly good movie in the trash? Pissed. Appalled. Pissed and appalled. <laughs> but not just that his brother had destroyed quality, releasable content. He was appalled at the entire notion of them even going into color film in the first place. It added $10,000 to the production of each short film in 1932. And I looked up how much that would be in in 2021. And it's only over 
$200,000 today. And that's just to make it in color. That's not to make the whole movie. And they're like basically not even making money at this point. Literally. So Roy is like, you're joking, right? But also Roy, come on. Do you not know your brother? (laughs) Also, have you not seen what being first to everything has done for you? Poor Roy was tasked with pointing out the risks and being the voice of practicality each time his brother embraced the new technology. Roy was so upset by this event that he went around the studio trying to recruit allies to help him talk Walt out of his insanity. This wasn't the first or the last fight that they would have over finances, obviously, but good news in this case. Beth, do you remember um, Grauman's Chinese Theater that we visited in Hollywood? Of course. So iconic, so beautiful. Well, Mr. Grauman himself saw Walt's one-minute sample of the film in color and purchased it to play in one of his upcoming premieres. That's the theater with all the handprints in front of it, right? Yes, Flowers and Trees went on to do very well at the box office and even won Walt Disney Studios their very first Academy Award for Best Cartoon in 1931. I need to go watch this. Flowers and Trees. And it's just a short film. It's crazy that short films were like their first big thing. Yeah. He just won an Academy Award for it. But now even, I feel like Disney is known for their short films. They do. That play before, even the chess one. Yes, Iconic. and the little like the birds. Um, oh my gosh, the, the birds, the little like little like dumpling thing. I was gonna say the dumpling. I think it's called Bow. That one's like a newer so one. Cute. So, but like literally, it's twenty twenty one, and they're still making those yeah. short films. So, people so love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Nineteen thirty one was a big year for the Disney's mental breakdowns, a million fan club members, and a Grammy. Walt also won an award for Mickey that year. Okay, so he's winning awards now. Are things finally looking up? Finally. And that film, Flowers and Trees, also established the Disney studio as a leader in color, too. It wasn't really the story or the art of the film that made it so popular. It was really just the novelty of the brand new technology. See, Walt's always freaking right. Just that it was a movie in color. And can you imagine, like, going from... Only ever seeing like a flat still photo and then movies come out blows your mind. That's crazy. And then literally just 30 years later, seeing one in color for the first time, I feel like it would make it so much more real and like. Yeah, you would want to rewatch like every movie ever. Impressive. Yeah. So Roy's job is about to get just a bit easier. From making nearly zero profit in 1932, by 1934, they were making $660,000 a year in profit, not gross sales, profit. So in the last episode of the Walt and Roy, the Disney Brothers story, we're going to be talking about uh, some controversial things, half of the art department walking out the front door and trying to start a union. We're going to be talking about a couple of deaths several deaths actually um and then just kind of like the sentimental age of just getting to the end of life and then of course the creation of the happiest place on earth so definitely click that play button you want to hear the end of the story and it should already be loaded in your apple Podcasts or spotify app or on youtube and please 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 give us a rating in the apple podcast app because since we are so new and we're a little baby podcast it makes a huge difference in helping others find our podcast please and thank you bye bye